Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 284. Today is Sunday the 8th of July 2018 and this interview is with Helene Guillaume who is the co-founder and CEO of Wild, a health tech startup backed by Entrepreneur First, pioneering in creating preemptive, preventative care for athletes. Specifically, Wild collects various data inputs and uses AI to help understand your body and provide smart, personalized recommendations. With Helene's combination of high-performing athlete and her quant data background, Wild is a fascinating venture. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. So welcome to the Minter Dialogue today in a lovely, on a sunny, sunny day in a Starbucks with some wonderful background music, so I hope you'll excuse the sounds in the background. Maybe you'll enjoy it. I have someone I met at COGX who uh, was a speaker at COGX with myself. And Helene Guillaume shares with me another wild and wacky element, which is she's lived the world, speaks lots of languages, including Chinese and Polish and Spanish and the usual other European stuff. And um, and I was born in Belgium, which I was also. So, Helene, um, I, welcome to the show. Tell us who you are and uh, what's your mindset these days? Um, hi, Minter. So, who am I? I was born in Belgium. Uh, Lived a bit everywhere, Japan, France, Hong Kong, Italy, England. And uh, I have both a technical and business background. So I studied maths and financial risk, started my career as a quant in a hedge fund, and then did different things of which management consulting, helping large corporates work with tech, uh, including AI. All right, so let's just start with the beginning in a sense. Uh, there is a, a lot of issues and talk about the fact that there are not, a, not enough women in, in uh, data science, maths, and, and this world that you're in. How did you get into it, and what can you do to encourage more women getting into it? I think for me it was very natural, actually. I was what we call tomboy when I was a kid, but uh, so I loved uh, climbing trees and experimenting things and uh, loved maths and went naturally into that and loved the, the male environments. Um, but I just realized very recently that I wasn't a tomboy. I was just a, a kid who liked climbing trees, which most kids like. But there is a very big... Uh, like People believe that girls don't like climbing trees, which is just that adults tell them not to do that because they're girls. And I think that's the fact that we they are hold back to climb trees, experiments, uh, play with dangerous toys, etc. Like it, it, it holds them back, basically. So it's a bit harder at the beginning to get into these experimental topics, which are science. Um, but I loved it early on, and maybe I was pushing it naturally a bit myself. Um, but I think we should change, to change the, the way, to change the entry point, which is a uh, girl studying STEM, we need to start very early and stop dressing girls in pink and giving them, uh, I don't know, Barbies and boys, um, like chemical toys, basically. Toy trucks. All right, so... You've now got a lot of experience and, and, and are running a company, but what kind of path would you recommend for someone who wants to get into data analytics? I mean, it's sort of like the study of data is one thing, but do you need to have a, an, a purpose? Do you need to understand a specific software? I mean, obviously, you have to have a, 
a healthy appetite for numbers, but what else do you, what would you recommend to somebody who's looking at that area? Because today there's obviously a dearth of people who are experts and good at and want to work in data. Yeah, when, when I was a kid and then a young uh, a teenager and then a young adult, it wasn't very sexy at all to to do maths and engineering. Now it's more sexy, so uh, studying computer science is easier, and then data science is just a good complementary uh, skill to do either straight after maths or uh, after or before computer science. Uh, but just, I think, anyone today who wants to do anything, really, if you want to be a designer, an architect, um, you need to understand, uh, you, you are much more empowered if you understand the power of, of data. Because we sit on, on, on mine goals of data sets everywhere in the world. Um, and if you're able to leverage that, you're basically much more powerful, even in design, if you look at that. So you have a, a classic Gen Y profile. You came here on a bicycle, and you've worked in a gazillion places, and have created really a really interesting path here. One of them that struck me of great interest was what you did at the Founders. Um, what was it called the, the Founders Intelligence. Intelligence, exactly, with Brent Hoberman, and and uh, and one of the work you did there specifically interested me, which was working on how to use AI to drive the business and. Obviously, this is the type of question a lot of executives who have no AI background are saying, hmm, I better get on board. What's my AI strategy? So tell us about that experience and, and how did, what did you learn from it in terms of helping organize an organization like Fannie Mae to, to get on board with AI in their organization? So I think, first of all, there's a big myth around AI, which is um, like you shouldn't use AI for the, just the sake of using AI. And a lot of people want to understand it. Uh, so large corporates just literally don't understand the difference between AI and deep learning. So the first thing is just being aware of it. And five years ago, it was even worse as today. Today, AI and blockchain is a bit more aware, but um, quantum computing, no one still knows what it is. So this is like the next thing to know about. So first of all is like don't use AI just for the sake of it, but if you have data, which most large corporates have, it can really enhance it. And I think the right way to go around that is understanding the processes, internal processes of your businesses, such as if you're a financial institution, the financial risk, or if you are into trading or if you do any type of trading, uh, the settlement and clearing should is a, is a legacy from when a trader was calling another trader and saying I buy a thousand and then you had his bank and the other bank confirming and settling and clearing the trades whereas actually there's no reason to have that today. So it's understanding the processes within the corporates first of all and then within these processes very tiny things that you can optimize with technologies of which happens to be AI which is just a buzzword to say smart algorithm using huge amount of data sets and extracting actionable insights. All right, so let's just break down one second. With Fannie Mae, you arrived as part of Founders Intelligence as a consultant. You looked at their processes. How did you dissect and discover the place where you needed to apply AI? And then the next question is, what did you do to make it happen? So I think like typical consultants, you, you arrive and you work together with the internal teams. So it was understanding with them uh, how does it work. And then I have a background in financial in finance as well. I was a quant in a hedge fund. So understanding the risk models 
is the same thing. They had much more, uh, much more data sets, but I was doing the same as a quant. Just you have data, and then what do you do with it? You, you take it into account, and then you extract what are your exposure to risk and what, what positions can you take. And so understanding that and understanding what, what uh, internal tools they were using, uh, and then looking into the markets at uh, startups that were doing things in that world or who had experience in similar world and then try to meeting with them and trying to introduce them and see where they could work together and then facilitate work, them working together. I see. So it's very much about establishing collaboration with a startup as opposed to building your AI intelligence internally. Is there not a place for trying to develop internal expertise in AI? And or do you need to do that if you want to succeed a collaboration? That's a very good question. So I think the issue between internal versus external is a very repetitive question. Uh, should we have the in-house data science team or should we use a third-party product, which means that when they work with us, they actually get become better as a startup because they have access to all the data sets. So who holds the IP, etc. is like on and on uh, question. And large corporates always prefer to have internal. But the issue is that internally, if you apply it, if there's a team working on one topic, they will only have exposure to that one topic, which means it kills innovation. Um, so work, I think corporates now are getting a little bit more um, comfortable working with external third-party products. Uh, it's still a struggle, but it's, it's a very good thing. And, um, and, and having internal data science team is necessary, but, but again, they probably won't have the expertise of having worked, basically having worked with another company. Uh, and just having worked with another company would enable them to have a different view of solving a, a similar issue. So when you're doing this type of a work with an external, two thoughts come to mind. The first is the challenge with data is these three Vs. And the variety of sources and the formats is already a challenge internally. If you then have to embed a, an external party, how does that go? Does that help it or does that render it one more sophisticated element you need to tackle? Well, these guys are experts. So like to name an, a company, a friend of mine, uh, his company is called Cosalens. Um, they don't work with Fannie Mae, but... Uh, Cosalens, what they do is that they uh, they do causations and correlations for financial services. So you would imagine that the internal data science teams of the hedge funds are much better suited to understand that. But actually, they have the data sets that they input. They then clean it. Cleaning, sadly, in AI is a very big job. Uh, <laughs> cleaning and labeling is the whole like it's basically 90% of the, the work of a data scientist which is pretty boring um, but then uh, then they are used to see a lot of data sets so they're able to clean it much more efficiently to label it much more efficiently and then have much better algorithms because they have much more data sets that uh, uh, even if it's a really big hedge fund they have all the data sets of the others so it actually becomes much much better and they really have the expertise of these algorithms they don't have the expertise of trading so as actually Ray Dalio was saying in, in trading is very relevant you can cut a lot with, uh, with the machines they do really well at doing what a human would do very repetitively especially highlighting correlations for instance whether it be in financial institutions or in healthcare discovering drugs or what we do early on prevention uh, they do that very well but then the human element is very important so the, the human the loop is, is crucial so the guys who are third parties like Cosalens and they would do really, really well and probably much better than internal data science team, these correlations and causations. 
but then the trader still adds value because he decides if it makes sense or not. Right. In terms of the correlations. Yeah. So when you are doing this cleaning, I have to imagine, because I'm not at all involved in that, that there's actually an element of learning in cleaning. And that as you go through the data sets that are being imported, ah, well, that's this, this is the error they've made before. It was spelled email, E hyphen mail, instead of E M A I L. That's the, that's the error that we hadn't figured out before, to make it simple. And, it, and then it brings up the question of how does one learn from best practices for, with, throughout the rest of the organization, especially when you're bringing in a third-party player? You mean how do they learn how to use it? Well, for example, we're learning how to clean. Okay. Yeah. And, and ultimately, the challenge with bringing in this third-party is how does the rest of the organization benefit and learn from the experiences you have? So learning how to clean, the machine learns really well how to clean. So instead of labeling, so instead of looking up in the files email or mail or email address, that would be what a human would do. What he would probably start doing is that he would look at the data inside and would look at patterns that he recognizes, such as Robert. He would look at Robert and Emma or Shu and Chi if he's in China. And if he sees that over and over again, he would then think that this is called first name and then if he say, sees a column where there's repetitively ads and dot com he would think by himself that this is an email and that's that's how he learns and so he learns by by taking all the data sets that is in the environment whereas we we do that in a we would do actually the same thing if, if it was not labeled if there the, there were no headers that's how we would go around but to to code that it's quite hard because so so that's that's AI it doesn't ha it doesn't need Um, the explanation to tell the machine look for Roberts and look for Emma's because maybe there's not any right. and then the rest of the organization basically uh, if you use a third party it would be they could do a, they could have a really big job in and providing um, clean data full data and uh, accurate data uh, that, that they can play a very big job and then the third parties they do their job really well which is extracting in information from that All right, let's get on to what you're up to, Helene. So, um, you are, so you're a CEO and co-founder of Wild. And as I understand it, it's uh, your passion for sports, uh, specifically cycling, swimming and running, and, and trying to predict and help us be better at this healthy activity. That's sort of what I got, and AI is used within that. Tell us, in your words, what you do. So our purpose is helping you never be ill again. So we think that your, your, all of uh, the way we are towards our health is very reactive. Whereas we get sick, go see a doctor, generate data through blood tests, etc., get, get drugs and eventually get cured, is really reactive. Whereas really we could see your body as a, an efficient operational system. If you look at the car industry, um, I think it's Ali Pars of Babylon who was saying that, if, if you look at the car industry, You used to have um, mechanics everywhere because the cars were breaking down all the time. Um, so you needed all these mechanics. But today, you bring your car once a year, you do the MOT, and then the car just works. It never breaks down anymore. And we could have the same attitude towards our health. We could understand early on our body through your data and act on it early on so you never need to get sick, basically. And that's what we do. So we help you live smarter through your data. And we start with people who have more data sets, who have a shorter road loop, and who proactively already want to improve themselves, which are runners, cyclists, and swimmers. To what extent did your experience of living in Asia 
contribute to this idea and this purpose, purpose that you have? Living in Asia, I think actually really big. It's a very good question, but actually it's pretty big. So uh, I grew up in Japan, and actually the, the behavior towards health is very different. With the way we created uh, healthcare is that we were uh, opening up a dead body, we were analyzing it, and then we were putting uh, chemicals on it, and it was eventually curing things. So every everything around our health is you have a symptom and you take a pill and it solves it you have a stomachache you take a pill you don't look at the reason you just take a pill whereas in asia is very very different you will look at this, all the like you will look at the, your tongue your ear your little finger and they will look at these things and they would cure early on they will always give you herbs or different ways of behaving acupuncture. or acupuncture um, and actually when i was very young in japan i was very sick and i got cured with acupuncture which in Europe would have been like, they would have, I think it's absolutely insane. Not to mention they wouldn't have reimbursed your, your fees. Exactly. <laughs> so my parents, probably my mother, strongly, strongly believes in early on curing people. And actually she's Polish. And in Poland, like, because we didn't have this huge industrialization, it's still quite early on. Like, it's still very much in how do you eat differently early on so you don't get sick afterwards, basically. And I think Asia is really good at that. And uh, last year I was in Japan in a temple meditating with a monk. And, uh, and he strongly believes in fasting. So 16 hours fasting per day, every single day. And then whenever you get sick, you stop eating, which we believe is crazy because when we're sick, your mother or your parents would tell you, you have to eat so you're strong. But actually, our body tells us the right signals. It, our body is, is not hungry. And the reason, if you look at a plant, uh, a plant that is uh, dying, if you cut it, it will resist and it would go through and it would be born again very healthy. And that's what the body is asking for. It star it's asking for starvation, so you starve the bad cells as well and you can re regenerate your cells. So that's, yeah, so actually it's a really good question. Like Asia is really ahead of us in, the, in, the, in that sense. I mean, we can all learn from that. All right, so now let's talk specifically about how Wild works. Because uh, let's say I... I I modestly do some running, but I'm not, you know, anywhere near what you are and, and most of your uh, people. What exactly needs to happen in order to use your software? You sign up and you input, plug in my Apple Watch, I plug in my iPhone, I plug in the strap, I have my heartbeat. What, how does that exactly work and what does it get out? What does it tell me to do? So there's uh, what we're doing today and what we'll do tomorrow. Today we're helping you train smart. Um, so absolutely, so you plug your, your uh, wearable, which uh, has a heart rate, and then we ask you daily questions uh, with a chatbot. So how did you sleep? How many hours? What's your stress level? How did you eat and drink yesterday? And then after each activity, we ask you how hard was it? Uh, did, you do, did you stretch? And do you have any goals? So this subjective plus objective data gives us a really good understanding of who you are. And then from there, we provide you uh, a picture of where you are and where you could go is basically a replication of what I was doing as a quant risk analysis giving you a picture and what you can do from there and so on there you would see for instance that you tend not to stretch that you sleep less than seven hours a day a night um, and then going forward we'll add more type of data sets uh, such as your periods for women which is really important um, are men pretty pretty much flat uh, not in character but in, in terms of metrics uh, whereas us is really interesting we, it varies all the time based on our cycles or digestion varies all the time so for instance when our body is more acidic we should probably not be eating tomatoes and uh, orange juice which we believe are good food but actually is extremely acidic so you would start seeing correlations between your digestion your cycles 
uh, and what impacts it. Is it the activity? Is it the sleep? The stress? And then, so that's the second step. So first step is data input. Second step is data visualization, data visualization and insights. And the third step is recommendations. What can we do with that? And this is happening through Messenger, as I understand, or at least a, a bot that is essentially talking to me, right? Is, are there other avenues for that under development? What are you doing with that? So Messenger is a really good place to start. It's, uh, it's chatty. People like it. Uh, but we are we also planning to, pl- to do a na- native app as well. There will be a, a bot talking to you in the app, uh, but, but it, there will be an app like companies such as ADA or Babylon are doing as well. And when you are talking with this chat bot, to what extent does it know this is Minter and Minter is like this and Helene is like this uh, beyond the basic information? Is there an element of variety and personalization and give us an idea of how you're making that happen? Yeah, so it gets better and gets smarter. So at the beginning, you can start using it straight away, and it starts, it's, it's fun, it's interacting, uh, but then it starts knowing you a bit better. So for, to give you an example, some people like to be pushed, and some people hate to be told what to do. Um, so the people who hate to, do, to be told what to do, they want to proactively add uh, what they want to track, for instance. So we would ask you... Um, we, we would test that, so we would prompt you things, and then if you start not replying, we would ask you, do you want to do that? And when, when you say, yes, I want to do that, you actually, in your brain, you are more prone to do it. Whereas other type of people, such as me, I love following what I'm told to. So I've been coached playing rugby or doing sports, and I just follow what I'm, I'm told. If I, be, if I trust the, the source... I just follow and I'm very happy that because it just cuts all my decision making and I, I'm happy with that. Well, this brings up the, the fundamental, there are two points which I talk about somewhat incessantly, which is this element of trust and the role of empathy to create trust. If you trust the source, but how do you gain trust as a machine? It's a really good question. So you gain trust by being relevant. So I think for us, because it's um, we we need to be relevant. So to give you an example, right now we are we have data, so we need to bring back data to the people. We need to show them that we are taking care of the data, but we also need to t- to show them that we are adding value to their data. So the fact that we are creating new visuals and they're seeing the their data like they never seen it before, but it's also their data and they can recognize it. They start trusting it. That's one thing. And second, it needs to be uh, proved. Uh, so we have a really strong team and very strong uh, advisors around us as well, uh, like from the, the Center of Human and Health, uh, Health and Human Performance, um, or Paul, who is PhD in neuroscience, AI engineer. So we have a team that is really strong and, and that can be trusted. Um, that's on the background. But really, like on a day-to-day basis... It's uh, if you give something and then it's relevant to you, they would start trusting it. What we don't want is that you start loving the bots. Because I think one of the risks of AI is not AI killing people. That's a bit uh, drama, but it's, it's people starting loving it so much that it replaces other people or it replaces um, coaches, for instance, which we don't want to do. We just enhance, we just empower them and, and do their job. Well, it makes me think of two things. Um this notion of loving your bot. I mean, essentially, uh, having gone through the experience of, of spending five days with an empathic bot, 
I can see why that would be troublesome for society, for couples, and a few other things. But are you intentionally holding back on, or is it because it's just not possible to create a truly empathic bot? Well, I'm post-generation Tinder. I think you are as well. <laughs> but few. <laughs> but uh, I I don't have the numbers, but I believe that probably 95% of the conversations on Tinder. Uh, never end up in a face-to-face -face meeting, which means that if they wanted, they could have smart bots behind. It would actually optimize the engagement of people. If you have someone that is challenging, but then replies the way you want, uh, you would probably use more the product, and then you they could upsell things there. So there's no reason you don't have that, and they probably would make much better conversations than an actual human. So I don't think it's impossible at all. And if you look at some movies that are really well done, so... Um, Uh, Blade Runner, the new one, for a movie is surprisingly well done, the new one. He's in love with the bot, and you can see that she reacts, and she's, she's te te teasing him, but when he, she goes too, too far, she holds back. So she really learns what he likes, and that's a bit scary. So, like, we can do it, but it's more, uh, we have to stop it. So for us, we want the product to be funny, we want it to be... Uh, But we don't want you to love it. There's an element of transparency that it's a machine and we don't want you to think of it as a human being. All right, so um, if I were to be using this, for example, you talked about prediction and, and prevention. Would the system be able to tell me, Minter, you shouldn't work out on a Monday morning, better to work on on a Wednesday evening or, you know, whatever regime, and uh, do 45 minutes, not an hour? Are these the types of things that I could get as a benefit from your system yeah exactly so there are a lot of things that your data that you already have today tell us so for instance your heart rate is a really really good indicator of how well rested you are it's an indicator of the stress of your body but also of your mental well-being so if we, we are reading your your heart rate and whenever you go to bed your heart rate is high it decreases overnight until it reaches the lowest point of the night which is called the resting heart rate and basically it stays flat until you wake up When you go to bed having eaten a lot or drank alcohol or exercise, it's higher and reaches that point later, which means that you recover less uh, hours, uh, which means that over one night is interesting, but over days or weeks or months is really interesting because uh, for us who are active, the early signs of, being, uh, of not being well rested is that we plateau and then we injure ourselves. Because the reason is that because your body hasn't rested well, your body is still acidic and hasn't expelled all the toxins, So you start plateauing and then injuring yourself, which actually is a really good thing because it means that you are forced to stop, exactly, whereas if you didn't exercise, you wouldn't see these early signs, which becomes a really nice environment for long-term disease such as cancers to develop because they love acidic environments. So heartbeats, is my Apple Watch accurate? Kind of. So there's three levels of heartbeats. The, the, the first and uh, less accurate is, the, is on your wrist, which is not really accurate, but it's okay. It just gives us an indicator, which is, which is fine, because for us it's the differential that is interesting. Then the second one is the strap. So if you have that, it's pretty good, uh, but it's not medical. And the, the third one is electrodes, which is clinical level, which gives you, uh, can detect uh, heart uh, defects. Uh, so we are on the first two ones. Uh, wrist and chest um, but so we cannot detect heart defects quite yet because technologies are good enough but later on we can imagine that we'll, it will get really really good just just a small anecdote is it important to have a tight wristwatch I mean I, I think about that in the morning as I put on mine if it's tighter will it read better or is that just or just as long as it's close to 
Yes, it's better. It's better when it's tighter. Yeah. I figured as much. All right, I want to talk to you uh, now, Elaine, about the marketing angle because you're on a space that isn't empty. There are many people thinking about sports and, and IoT and, and the ability for us to track our health. I mean, I think of my experience with Babolat, uh, by the way, where I, I play a lot of tennis, and my tennis racket tells me how many backhands I hit with what torque, what speed, uh, where on the racket I hit it. But the, the challenge afterwards is what you're going to do with it and the recommendation element. Uh, but, you know, you should be hitting more here, there, and so on and so forth. Um, how are you making yourself known? And what advice would you have going forward um, to... to, to be able to stand out in a crowded market? So right now, our focus on the university was to get traction, so to create a product that one person loved, which we got, and now our full focus is on retention, number one, adding more value to the people, adding more insights, more recommendations. Number two is impact, uh, so we have re- impact, they report impact, but we want to see that in data, so see sleep patterns improving, niggles decreasing, stress levels decreasing, and once you see these two things, we start seeing referrals and a growth that is viral. And at that point, we'll start pushing on the growth and marketing. So having said that, and the reason is that uh, each, each dollar that you put there will actually be enhanced. But having said that, we have tested the alleys that work for us. And what works for us really well right now is Instagram, because it's inspirational. People want to get better. And the second one is LinkedIn. So our first pool of population is very visible. They're very present. So you have groups of triathletes in business or Ironman finishers where you have thousands of people. So it's really easy to reach them over there. So that is to start with. And we started with the niche, which is um, runner cyclist swimmers. And this is paid, sponsored links that you're sending in? Not through LinkedIn, it's direct. Oh, no, but it's in Instagram. On Instagram. So, no, we, we reach out to them. Just reach out yeah. one-to-one, looking for the people who have obviously more followers, that kind of a thing? Not necessarily, actually, because they work with us tribes. So uh, one person will have at least three friends doing the same sports. And that for us is really important. And then, and then later on, we'll, we'll tap into people who have a lot of followers. But right now, we want, we, want, we, we want people to help us build a product, really. And we have 60 very engaged ambassadors who we tap into a, a lot, and they're really, really helpful. So whenever we have a new release, we spend an hour on the phone with them, and they give us feedback on what they see, what they understand, don't understand, and they help us build a product. Um, so that's where we are now. And then later we'll tap into these people with a lot of followers. How many users or clients? Uh, tell us about the business model too. Yeah. So we have uh, 600 people using the, the beta and 12,000 on the mailing list. And the business model is twofold. So one is B2C, freemium model. Um, so you get access to more data insights, recommendations. And then later on as well, you'll get plugged to specialists in the non-medical medical world, which is... Um, coach, nutritionist, uh, sleep expert, uh, physiotherapist, but you'll get plugged to them with relevance. So th- you would be plugged with people who've been to these guys uh, who had a good experience and he had the same profile as you. So if you had lower back pain and you're training five times a week, you would speak to that, to that physiotherapist. So this will be a commission base where you're doing business development for the physiotherapist. Yes, so, and, uh, and you would be able to speak to that person because most of the time you don't have to see the person. Physiotherapist being an exception, but sleep specialist, you probably don't need to see him ever physically. So you can be plugged to that. So that's on the B2C side. So access, uh, access to these specialists as well. Although I would say, knowing a lot about sleep, there's a lot of it psychological and, and sometimes intimate. And so I, I would suspect that even in sleep, one could do with uh, face-to-face. 
last area of I- intrigue is with regard to community. Because as much as you're talking about AI, apps, devices, and all this, you are, by quintessence, a very physical uh, experience. And therefore, you're running generally in groups, you're competing, and so on. So how, how have you looked at the community aspect and, let's say, the in-real-life aspect? Yeah, so the ambassadors are doing that really well right now. So they are creating the evolution around them and we empower them. So we put pictures on them and we write stories about them, etc. But uh, it's part of our life. Like what we are doing as a product is because we had these issues firsthand. And so around us, our, our friends or communities are, built, are growing through that directly and the offline aspect is really very important so we will um, we will develop that much more so on the on the business as well there's a very strong B2B aspect which is with corporates of insurance companies but actually so within there you could create small communities as well and people developing each other uh, by uh, micro level competition and gamification and uh, we also developing partnerships with race organizers for instance um, but a race is today is just a race day and they don't have the, the contact with the people for the rest of the year whereas through us you would be able when you sign up to a race you have the date you have all these people but you have a micro level competition so for instance six months before instead of being ranked 17,000 over 22,000 I, w- I would be female my age my category and training five times a week and I would be number 17 over 22 and as I go running I would go down or up and creating that would create senses of community as well wonderful well Ellen um it's lovely having you on your show. If you have, what is the um, the one piece of advice that you would have for entrepreneurs who are today looking at starting up, driving, building their business? Maybe what's the one most important thing that you've learned so far to date you'd like to share? Create. I think it's uh, so. Don't consume, but create. Um, it's really easy to read a lot and uh, yeah, just read about everything. And but actually. Uh, if you start creating, you you are m- much ahead of anyone else. So, for to give you an example, if you want to go into AI because you think it's attractive or it's unknown and that attracts you, read about it, but comment on it. Like write articles on Medium about it, and when you have ten, you publish it, and people will comment it. Or worst case scenario, just won't read it, but you will have created things and you would have created knowledge. Like we do that really well at university. We we, we write all the time about other stuff. So continue doing that and, and create around that. Do interviews of people. People love talking. Um, and, and, and just start building your knowledge in the sector more and more and become an expert. And, being, and you, you will start slowly be recognized in that sector. Lovely, Helene. Love that. Uh, what's the best way to track you down, follow you, and of course, sign up for WILD? You can join me at 6 a.m. swimming, and then <laughs> you can join me uh, cycling uh, most of the days and uh, running. I'm looking to run outside of London mostly, uh, so that you can you can track me there, uh, or you can go on the website uh, wildnow.co or per email Helen at wildnow.co. Splendid. Many thanks, Helen. C'était un plaisir. Love to continue on. Of course, I'm not really going to be one of your biggest uh, users, but I'd be happy to share. Later, when when it gets to uh, mass market. All right. Well, thanks so much, Helen. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button, or better yet, 
head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Joss Sax's finger paint. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. 
they were able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 